All right, so we are continuing in our series where we're going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians together. Um, we left off in uh, chapter 9. We're going to pick up in chapter 10. You may have forgotten. We've kind of gone through a Christmas series over the past few weeks, uh, but we're going we're gonna to get right back into it. And before I get started, I want to say this. Um, Buckle up, buttercup, because it is, uh, you're like, what? It's already been rough. Like 1 Corinthians 6, did you read that? Like it was, yeah, we're actually continuing to go through it because what Paul is sharing here in chapter 10 is a sobering truth um, that he's telling these Jesus followers in Corinth. Like honestly, it's a truth that leaves us a bit unsettled, I'm sure, for the people that were receiving this letter, it, it left them feeling a bit concerned um, and, and one that I think would be really good for us to wrestle with today. And uh, what, what Paul is poking at in our lives is something that is very prevalent in our modern day church here in America. Um, some people have coined it easy believism. And if you ever heard that before, essentially it's this idea that well, you get saved by giving mental assent to Jesus that he's the son of God and maybe repeat a prayer at an altar or at a church service and maybe, maybe get baptized. And then that's it. Like you've arrived. That's it. I mean, you've, 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 you're a Christian now and that's all you need to do. And there are some churches that like will even tell you that you don't really play much of a role in your salvation. God chose you and, um, you know, it's not the other way around. And, you know, you really are essentially predestined and you don't really have much to say in the matter. And so you essentially all but stumbled into being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so don't worry about obedience. Don't worry about following him or reading his word or growing deeper in relationship with him because growth and things like discipline are for the professionals, people like me on stages and that teach and do things like that. They, they're not expected of a regular Christian or they're not a requirement of you as a follower of Jesus. And here's, here's what I want to say as, before we even read today. That is not the gospel that Paul preached. It's, it's certainly not the gospel that Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of here in, in chapter 10. And it's almost like Paul is putting warning labels on the gospel. Things to be aware of, things that you need to be like warned of, things to watch out for. And so I was, I was thinking about this, um, the whole idea of warning labels this week. I was actually looking on, on, my, uh, on my water bottle here, throw it up here, dude. Yeah, just launch it. Oh, you don't trust me. He doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust me. See that? See that? No trust. It probably would have hit me in the face. All right. <clears throat> anyway, it says, I, I just checked this morning as I was drinking it. It says, I was like, it probably has a warning label. It does. It says, cap, cap is, is small part and poses a choking hazard. So just so you know, don't drink this. This, this is the water. And this is not to be eaten or drank, as, as some of you might think it, it, that's how it's supposed to roll, but it's not. Um, so essentially, warning labels are on everything and anything that we, that we have. You pretty much, if it's got a label on it, turn it upside down, and it will have some sort of a warning. Warning labels are put on things 
so that consumers are aware of dangers that they might not otherwise know of, like things that aren't maybe necessarily common sense or immediately understood. But sometimes warning labels are actually put onto products in response to something stupid. Um, excuse me, <laughs> unwise decision that, that somebody has made uh, and they're like, man, we never thought we needed to say this, but we got put on all because we got sued. And so we have to put this on, on every single thing. So I, I have a couple warning labels for you. The first one is this one. Um, this is on a shirt. It actually says, do not iron while wearing shirt. Because you know some dude did it. He's like, mm, so much work, you know. His wife's like, your, your second degree burns are showing. You're like, you need, to, <laughs> you need to stop. Next one. This is a wheelbarrow. <clears throat> Apparently, somebody was like, but I could take that on the highway. Uh, yeah, that looks good. You know, pump up the tire. It'll be fine to go, right? Uh, my favorite one is this one. Um, the taste. The taste is never the same. I'm just going <clears> to. <throat> Sorry. I'm just like a middle school boy. All right, keep going. So, so Paul, Paul like, is, is giving the Corinthians, and what we're going to talk about today is five warning labels that he puts on the gospel to consider things that have historically held back and hindered the church from, from growing and from moving forward into everything that God has for them. And now I think that this is a perfect perfect message for New Year's because we're heading into a new year. We're heading into a new season, 2023. It's going to be better than 2022. Amen? Right? It's kind of weird. People are a little hesitant these days. It used to be like, yeah, new year, new, new me, new this. And people are like, mm, maybe, I don't know. Gas prices are a little lower, I guess. We can trust that. Like we're kind of in a place of just hesitancy. But how many of you know that as Christians, the change of a new year doesn't affect us moving forward, casting off the things that are hindering us into all the things that God has for us. Amen? Amen. So why don't you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to start 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. And um, yeah, just like I said, buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. Uh, verse 1. For, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the rock, the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, as we read a letter written to people in a different, completely different part of the world, in a different time, in a different culture, speaking a different language, we can, man, we can relate so, so very closely to the same things. I pray that as we read this, that it would leap off the pages, that it would actually cause us to tear off the things that are holding us back so that we can move forward into all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. So um, Paul reminds them, it's kind of weird if you're like first reading this section, talking about like being under the cloud and the sea and all that kind of stuff. Essentially what Paul is talking about in those like first five verses is he's reminding them about the Israelites, God's chosen people, And he's recounting how amazing it must have been for them to be freed from 400 years in slavery and to literally walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and all of the things that God did. Essentially, he's recounting God's miraculous provision as they wandered in the wilderness. Think about this. These people were freed from slavery. The water of the Red Sea splits into, they walk through on dry ground They are led everywhere they go by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They eat miracle food, we called manna, um, that, that God provided every morning. They would open up their tent and there it was. What is it? It's manna. They would drink miracle water from a rock that flowed, I flowed out of a rock that was hit by a stick. I mean, this, this was amazing, the wonders that these people experienced. And yet, and yet they found themselves wandering in the desert for 40 years, grumbling and complaining, walking in circles. They make a golden cow to worship, too terrified to go into the promised land. Why? Because the enemy seemed too big and they felt too small. And most of them died there, never finishing what they started. And so this example of the Israelites that, that Paul is giving to the Corinthians and to us is a reminder, a warning label of sorts, that you can experience the wonders of God and still not finish well. It's a sobering truth. Um, it's, it's a warning, I think, for every single one of us that call ourselves a Christian, that it's, it's not about how we start, it's about how we finish. It's about how we finish. I wrote in your notes, there's this, essentially I wrote this, the danger of immaturity is to fall into the sin of rebellion. And the danger of maturity is to fall in the sin of pride. It's this reality that like when we first come to the Lord, we're, we're so afraid that we're going to fall into rebellion, fall into sin, fall into lust, fall into those things. But as we grow in the Lord, as we become more established in Him, as we have a track record of following Him, we actually have more of a danger of falling into the sin of pride in our life. 
Um, see, the Israelites, they had experienced all these amazing, miraculous provisions. I mean, these awesome things that they had experienced, but they turned God's provision into man's entitlement. And they decided, oh no, we now deserve the things that we got for free. And rather than allowing God's provision to guide them into the promised land, they get sidetracked in the desert, never finishing what they started. Paul writes to the Philippians, a different group of people, kind of in a similar way. He says in verse, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, what Paul is warning the Philippians here and what he warns the Corinthians of is that if you want to finish well, it's time to begin with the end in mind. It's time to all of a sudden realize that the things that are in front of you aren't necessarily the biggest things in your life. Those things oftentimes will distract you from the promised land that is beyond you. And this is what Paul is, is warning the Corinthians. I think is what he would say to every single one of us. And as we enter into a new year, as we enter into a new season in our lives, it is good to take stock of the things that have held us back. It's good to take stock in the things that have hindered us from moving forward, maybe over the past year, maybe over the past six months, maybe over the past five years. Like what are the things that have actually stifled you from growing and moving forward? It is good to heed the warning of those who have gone before us. It is good to press on, to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of you. So, so five warning labels that, that Paul says hinder us from moving forward. And they're a bit sobering, um, I'm going to warn you. Paul gives them these examples, not just because he believes that they'll not only free you, but they'll also help you to walk forward into everything that God has for you. And the first one is this, don't worship idols. He says it in verse six and seven, he says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So Paul literally bookends this whole section with this warning. In fact, he all but sums up all of this section under one label, which is this, flee from idolatry. He ends verse 14, he says this, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The point is this, y'all need to watch out for idolatry in your life. Someone once said that the opposite of Christianity isn't atheism, it's idolatry. And if you think of it, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, there's this warning to flee from idolatry. You look at the first two commandments, right? There are no other gods before you, before me, and, and don't make idols. Don't make other gods. And so Paul reminds the Israelites, and essentially he's like, he's, he's like don't forget, like this is what happened to these guys. They got anxious because Moses went up on the mountain and he didn't come down. And they're like, where was he ever going to come? He's, he's been up on this mountain for so long. And so they just decide we're a little concerned that this representative to God isn't coming back and we're don't, we, we need to hear something. And so they decide to melt down all of their gold jewelry and they make a cow. 
to worship. And do you know what they called it? God. They called it God. Like, okay, this, this is God now. Because they wanted a God that was in front of them that they could see because Moses wasn't returning and he was their only connection to God. And so Paul is warning the Corinthians of this. If you're not careful, you will end up worshiping the work of your own hands and call it God. See, the hard thing about idolatry is that it's really hard to spot in yourself. When I was in India, we have longtime friends in India. Um, this is a few years ago. Took my whole family there, and we were driving around with Emmanuel and Allison Pothin and their kids. And I kept seeing these like weird little shrines on the side of the road. I, I found a picture on the internet because I didn't have one. They kind of look like this. They're all different. Some of them are like awk, like weird, like they're almost like made in a tree or out of a tree or in a hole in a tree. And some of them are little shacks. Some of them are like big and actually palatial. And, and I asked him, I'm like, what, what are these things? Literally, you just be driving down the road and they're just, you just see them like every mile or two, these these weird little little shrines. And he says, well, they're essentially, they're shrines that are dedicated to a territorial or a neighborhood god or goddess. Um, so what, what happens here is that Hindus will bring essentially like even food, like prepare food, bring it and leave it there. And you can see like this one's pretty clean, but like if you look down, you can see the stoop underneath that weird doll. And um, you'll see like there's actually little trinkets. They'll leave trinkets there. They'll bring money there. They'll leave food. They'll even sacrifice like birds. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd. It's a place where beggars will, will hang out hoping that like they'll curry favor from people that like, you know, you have more than I do. You should give me something. And so I even heard that there was one on the side of the road. I didn't get to see this one. <laughs> but you, you drive, as you're driving, it's so close to the side of the road that you just throw money out your window at it <laughs> as like a prayer to keep you safe on the drive. So it's kind of like a toll to a neighborhood god or goddess to keep you safe. You literally, people just chuck the money out, just keep going, right? You just, but the, it's like, for me, as I was driving through India, I'm like, it is so in your face. This idol worship, it's like everywhere you go. Now, I was reading this interview with an Indian woman who was a Christian, lives in India, is a Christian, um, and she had said that she had been to the United States before, but she didn't really like going very often. And so the interviewer was like, you know, why? Why don't you like going to the United States? She just said, yeah, I just can't stand all the idolatry. <laughs> she says, Americans are are always worshiping like their sports teams and their cars and their food and their pets. I, I just can't stand all the idolatry. It's so in your face. And I thought, have you never been to your country? Are you kidding me? And she'd probably look at me and be like, have you never been in your country? And I'm like, what I realize is this, is that it is so much easier to spot somebody else's idol than it is to spot your own. So, with your permission, I want to leave you with just a few questions, probing questions, 
They're in your notes for you to just be thinking about to help spot an idol in your life. Now I'm going to run down through them. The first one is this. What are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? Oftentimes, our greatest fears will reveal an idol in our life. So what is it that you're most afraid of? Like, are you, maybe it's a, I'm afraid of not having enough or being poor. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being forgotten or not being respected. What, what, is, what is it that you're most afraid of? Because we end up worshiping the thing that we think will save us from the thing that we fear the most. Does that make sense? So the Israelites, let's just talk about them. Let's not talk about you because nobody needs that. Like the Israelites were, were afraid that Moses wasn't going to come back. And he was like their, their guy. He was their connection to God. And he, he hasn't returned as his representative. And so essentially they're thinking that God is MIA as well. And so they decide because their fear is that they're no longer led by this God that led them out of Egypt, that they're going to make a golden cow and they're going to call it God because they can see it and they can worship it and it's in front of them. Because whatever we define as our hell, we will create a savior to save us from it. And we could see it clearly for the Israelites making golden cows out of gold. I mean, that's just weird, right? But what do we do? We run to things. We run to things that will essentially allay our greatest fears. We run to the next relationship the next boyfriend or girlfriend, or we run to sex or to work. We run to get more money or things or possessions or status or titles in order to save us from the thing that we fear the most. I'll move on. It's getting, t- it's getting quiet. It's number one, no, you can think about that later. Number two, what are you most passionate about? What is the thing that drives you? What keeps you going? Like, what are you giving yourself to? See, the interesting thing is that idolatry isn't simply worshiping bad things. In fact, very rarely. Like, it's usually the pursuit of something that is otherwise good. Many times it's elevating good things up to God things. And so it could be things like even your kids, your marriage, your health, your finances, your exercise, your hobbies, whatever those things are, they're not necessarily bad things. They're just things that have been elevated to God things. Another question is this. What do you spend your money on? Matthew 6, 21. I'll just read a scripture and move on. For, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, so if you want to know and find out what may be uh, an idol in your life, take a look at what you spend your money on. Okay, we'll keep moving. Um, next one. Where do you run for comfort? Where do you run for comfort? Proverbs 18.10 says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. So where do you run to feel safe? Where do you run to for comfort? Maybe it's food, maybe it's alcohol, sex, anger, possessions, shopping, things like that that you run to 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 actually bring you comfort, safety. The last one is this. What do you complain about the most? (laughs) Many times we get upset what we get upset about will reveal our idols. 
because we have expectations that they will deliver something that they were never meant to deliver. So you can get upset at your spouse because they were supposed to be delivering the acceptance, the worth, and the purpose, and the value that you thought that they would, and they're, they're utterly failing at being God, right? Because they're actually really bad idols. They're not supposed to be that. Sometimes we can even get upset about, at our kids. Why? Because they're, they're not appreciating us the way that we thought that they could or would or should. And sometimes we, we, we complain about our jobs. Our jobs are junk. Why? Because they never, they never give us the recognition that we deserve. And so oftentimes the things that we complain about the most are actually very revealing of the idols in our life. Okay, you can, you can think about that later. Um, the second warning label. So the first one, don't, uh, don't worship idols. N- number two, and we find it in verse eight. He says this, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. So the second one is this, stay away from sexual immorality. Paul already addressed this in, uh, in chapter 6. In fact, if you want to go back, uh, I actually preached a sermon called It's Just Physical, uh, where he really just talks specifically about sexual immorality. And, but what I would say is this, and then, I'll, and then I'll go on to the next one, is this. If, if you are not growing spiritually right now, if you're feeling like stagnant, paralyzed spiritually, if you feel like God is distant, please don't miss this one. Please don't miss this one. Make no mistake, this is the thing that is robbing this generation of its vitality because we refuse to say no in this area of our life. Paul says it, flee from sexual morality, to simply obey the warning label and to flee from it. And rather than saying no to, to, to anything in this area of our life, we celebrate it and we cancel people that ever would say that anything about it is wrong. Number three, stop trying to have Christ serve you instead of you serving him. (laughs) Verse 9, he says it this way, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That sounds horrible, does it not? What in the world? I can see bit by snake, but killed by snake. That is not a good way to go. Uh, Paul's referring to what happened um, to the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to read it for you. In verse, starts in verse 4, he says this, The people grew impatient on the way. Don't we always grow impatient on the way? It says, they spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt and to die in the, uh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. the end for them. I just want to, like, here's the point. Testing God did not go well for some of them. It did not go well for them. And there is this alluring fallacy in, well, in a lot of today's churches that, um, and I think it's maybe in an attempt to put more butts in seats or to allay people's consciences, uh, that where we assure people 
Well, God loves you no matter what you've done. We say that so many times. God loves you no matter what you've done. And that is absolutely true. However, it does not give you license to continue in your sin. And to put God's grace to the test. People say, well, you know, I just, you know, I... I just, I'm just going to keep doing this thing because you know what? God's going to forgive me anyway. Like, this is what Paul's talking about. That God's grace should always lead us to holiness, not licentiousness. All right, number four. Verse 10, he, says, he starts out and says, And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. I don't know, that, that's crazy. N- number four is this. Grumbling will literally get you nowhere. Grumbling will literally get you nowhere. You can tell your kids that, right? Like grumbling will literally get you nowhere. So once the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea in this miraculous way on dry ground, it did not take them very long to start complaining. They started, they started sounding a lot like your kids on like a five-minute road trip where they're just like, are we there yet? My feet hurt. I'm hungry. Ah, you know, like... Literally, they just start complaining right away. And that not only are they complaining about my feet or all the, they're literally start glorifying their past. They're looking back at slavery in Egypt on the other side of the Red Sea. And they're like, it was so much better when we were slaves. Do you remember that? We had meat. It was, we had pots of meat. Thursdays with like, oh, you can eat squirrel nights. It was awesome, right? Like, it was so much better when I was a slave. I wish we could go back there. Really? Really? When you were getting mistreated, like when you, when you were getting beaten, when you were abused, really? Like the squirrel was that tasty? Huh? Really? But isn't it amazing that once you start going negative, once you start grumbling and complaining, it is so easy to see the things that you don't have in front of your face and miss the things that you do have. That's all they saw. Wish I had more squirrel. Should go back and get beaten, right? That would be so much better. Things were so much better when I was a slave. Do you remember that? Oh, I was glorious. What? Because, see, it is an innate human desire for us to satisfy in the moment rather than seeking to be satisfied ultimately. And... So they're grumbling so much. I mean, catch this. They're grumbling so much that they're willing to trade their freedom in for some fried chicken. Like, we should just go back. We'll go back because they had great fried chicken back in Egypt. I don't remember much of anything else, mostly because I was getting bludgeoned by the head. And, and, and I, but I'll just go back there because the chicken was great. Like, what in the world? Why would you ever do this? Paul is reminding the Corinthians of this warning label that grumbling will literally get you nowhere. So, good news, the Israelites finally found out a way to stop grumbling. Do you know what it was? They died. I pray that we don't have to find out the same way. I pray that, that we, can, we can learn from those that have gone before us and realize grumbling will actually get me nowhere. Now, the last warning label that Paul writes is this. Make sure that you finish well. 
Remember I said earlier that the danger of immaturity is to fall into the sin of rebellion, but the danger of maturity is to fall into the sin of pride. When I was a young Christian, I was, I was so concerned that I was going to fall into rebellion. I thought I was one cigarette, one lustful look away from just like falling away from Jesus, right? I thought, man, this is, this is, this is what's going to take me out. This is going to be it. But the older that I get, not just older in like age, but older in maturity in Christ, the more established I feel, the more routines override my rebellion, and the more pride wants to give me a false sense of security. And the more pride causes me to crave sins that are easier to hide. And Paul speaks really strongly to the Corinthians, the mature Corinthian Christians. He says in verse 12, so if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He's warning the Corinthians. He's like, just because you have trusted God to get you where you are doesn't mean that you've arrived where God is wanting to take you. You aren't finished yet. And Paul is wanting the, these Corinthians, he's, he's essentially telling them this really awkward and mm, concerning paradigm where you can start well and yet not finish well. And the devil would love to let you follow, begin to follow Jesus for years and maybe even lead other people and then take you out just before you finish. Make sure you finish well. Make sure you finish well. Look at your neighbor and say, you aren't finished yet. Like if you're sucking oxygen on planet Earth right now, the good news is he's not done with you yet. And it is your responsibility to do everything within your power to finish well. Why don't you stand with me? Paul uses this uh, in, in, in verse 13. He kind of mixes bad news with really great news. What he says in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide, catch this, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, I've always read this. This is just honest. I've always read this and thought like, okay, so I know that I'm going to be tempted. Trials will come. Temptation comes. But God is faithful and he will always give me an escape hatch right? He's always going to give me a way out. But then he adds this, and I don't know if you noticed this too, but at, at the end of verse 13, he adds this part that he says, so that you can endure it. <clears throat> now I get this picture of like, like a, 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 an army that is surrounded by an enemy. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, all this temptation, all this trial, all this stuff is coming at me. 
God has given me a way out. Where is it? And then suddenly you see the way of retreat. You see the way where you can get out of where you're currently in. I can get out of this. I can go back to safety. I can go back to where I once was. But can I remind you, if we look at what Paul is communicating here in the rest of this chapter, the way out is not the way of giving up. The way out is not the way of retreat. The way out is not the, oh my goodness, we can go back to safety. The way out is the way out of the wilderness. That's what he's talking about. He's like, there is a way out, and the way out is into the promised land. This is where I'm actually wanting to take you. I'm not actually saying that this is the time where you should retreat, where you should run, where you should go back to safety, where you should just get away from the the bad things that are in front of you. The way out is the way into conquest. The way out is the way into taking back the promised land that God has given you. The way out is moving forward. The way out is finishing well. The way out is the way in, folks. It's the way in. So you aren't finished yet. You're like, but I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of feeling old. You just, you haven't seen me. You don't know. No, I'm telling you, you aren't finished yet. Don't forget to read the warning labels of the Israelites. So if you feel like like you're you're cornered, you feel like you want to give up, like you are just wandering like you're tempted, like you're going through trials that are way too big for you, like you are surrounded, if you feel like you are defeated, now is not the time to give up. Now is not the time to retreat. In fact, the writer of Hebrews writes it this way, chapter 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run forward with perseverance The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now is the time to throw off everything that is hindering you. Now is the time to take stock of the sin that is so easily entangling you. Now is the time not to walk or to run away, but to run forward. Now is the time to persevere. Now is the time to keep your eyes on Jesus to move forward in the power of the grace of God. You're not finished yet. I think one of the greatest struggles as I look at the Christian world around me is that I see people who have started well and not finished well. Can I encourage you? Finish well. Not just for you, but for the generation that will come after you. There's more at stake. And don't get sidelined. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get sideswiped. Don't allow idolatry and sexual morality and complaining and all of those things make you start thinking that they're the most important thing in your life right now. Because you're not finished yet. 
and nobody else can cause you to finish well but you. And so, Lord, I just pray for each and every single person in here right now. Those that have started, we've started following Jesus. I pray of a good report of longevity, of people that would say, I fell in love with Jesus 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and I haven't been perfect, and I've stumbled. I've fallen into junk. I've allowed things to get in the way, but I am determined to finish well. And I will not allow my current sin to discredit the freedom that God has wrought in my life. And so, I throw off everything that hinders. <laughs> I disregard all the sin that would so easily entangle me so that I can run and persevere to the race that is marked out for each and every single one of you. And may I remind you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter and finisher of your faith. Lord, have your way in us again. I pray for those that have allowed the things of this world to, to deaden. I pray for those that have allowed the, the things of the church and the people and the disappointments and all of those things to cloud out the vision that has been so clearly set before us to run the race that we are not yet finished with. So may we get up, strap on our shoes, and start running again. Lord, I thank you that you continually, <laughs> for continually forgive us and lift us up out of the miry junk that we've put ourselves into and set our feet on the rock, the solid ground. And so we lift you up today. We lift you up and we worship you. In Jesus' name, let's worship.